0: Welcome, everybody. It's great to see you uh, this weekend. I want to talk to you about a couple things uh, before I get rolling with you this evening. Uh, one thing to ask you to remember, remind you of, and another thing that I want us to pray about. Uh, so, asked last week, I want to ask again this week, just keep in front of us, uh, to consider and to pray about and participate in uh, the financial health of Grace Church. So, uh, I know the economy is terrible. We're all feeling it uh, when it costs you know 130 bucks to fill your truck up, kind of a thing, and uh, inflation and all the rest. Just asking you to kind of pray about and remember that those those kind of economic things affect the ministry of the church as well. So when we're trying to support missionaries and do urban work and recovery work and just kind of even love and help. Uh, the, the kids and the college students, high school students around us, like we would, we would have those things affect the ministry of the church and the budget of the church. So if you could just keep that in mind and as you're thinking about that, uh, maybe pray and, and think about ways that you could participate in that on a regular basis and kind of regular giving. Uh, so those reoccurring monthly gifts that we set up on our Grace Links accounts and, and do with giving, are really, really important to the ministry of the church because it allows us to know what we're able to say yes to. Uh, because it allows us to budget. the way that it works. As you give, we're able to decide kind of what to do with those finances. So we encourage you to keep that in mind. If you watch online a lot, or all the time even, uh, maybe and uh, participate in that as well. And uh, through the websites or through the apps, you can set that up. Uh, but we just need to keep that in mind as we're all kind of going through these, uh, these economic times right now. So thanks for doing that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is something I want us to pray for. So grace is really a global movement. And so we have our eight campuses here in, in uh, North America, but we actually have missions work and campuses, so to say, and churches all over the world. And uh, one of the places that we have put a lot of time and money and energy is into a a church that we have in Haiti. And we would have, you could basically think of it as a Grace Church campus there in Haiti. So you have uh, Haitian brothers and sisters in Christ who would gather together under the Grace Church banner, so to say, every week. We have a pastor there, Pastor Shalo, and his family. And... uh, Things in Haiti are probably as bad as I've ever known them to be. And so there's lots of political problems, there's been kind of a, a little bit of a revolution, there's instability, lots of violence, lots of trouble getting resources, food, fuel, those kind of things. And that would show up in the lives of like our, our church family there. And so just ask you to start praying for them in a very specific way uh pastor shalo is an amazing man of god he who has chosen to stay in haiti and he wants to keep pastoring and uh, the people there and so that congregation and he and his family uh, would feel that pressure even be threatened by it a little bit and i just want you to know that i want to make sure we surround them and surround them in prayer and surround them in hope uh, we keep getting resources to them, and it's kind of difficult to do that right now. Uh, not so much on our end, but like actually getting them through the system into, into, uh, into his hands and to the people that need it. So we're going to stay faithful to them, uh, but we want to ask God to protect them in a certain way. So if you can kind of put that on your radar, uh, I'd be grateful. I know they will be grateful, and we just kind of want to stand together with them a little bit. Does that make sense? So, so let me pray for them, and then we'll, we'll get in our conversation this weekend. So Jesus, we pray for uh, Shayla, We pray for our, our church there, Grace Church there in Haiti. And God, ask in a special way that you uh, surround our brothers and sisters, uh, protect them, provide for them, God, whether it's fuel or food or safety, just basic things. Uh, let them lean into each other, and then God, every way that we can support and help and protect uh, make us aware and let us respond to that as well. And God, yeah, we don't pray just, just for them. We actually pray for the nation. Lord, we want we want peace. We want prosperity there. We want people's needs met. And so, God, we believe that you raise up and take down kings is what your word says. So we ask that you raise up a godly leader uh, that will uh, serve for the benefit of the people and bring the prosperity to them. And so, God, we just ask that you you intervene that way. And God, meet their needs. Just like we have financial needs and we have health issues and family and relationships issues and we ask for your help. We want to ask that on behalf of our brothers and sisters. And you tell us in your word that you are our ever-present help in times of trouble. And so, God, whether it's our troubles personally or the troubles of people that we love far away, uh, we know that your presence is there and we are just asking you to work in, in a powerful way. So... Thank you for that jesus work in our hearts tonight open our hearts and open our minds and and uh, help us to hear what you want to share with us also so we love you in your name amen amen all right um guys what i want to talk to you about this weekend is uh something that's been on my heart and uh i'm gonna have a little bit of a different conversation with you so if you're our guest this weekend normally i would like open up the uh, the scripture and we'd look at a passage and kind of dig deep into it Uh, i want to do a little something different than that tonight because i just need to have like a pastoral moment with the church and i need to talk to you about something that god's been uh kind of leaning into me so uh, i got to get away this summer a little bit which was really really good and helpful and uh when i was away i I had four or five things that were like deeply on my heart that i was like when i come back we got to talk about this stuff and a lot of that had to do with how we're interpreting the circumstances of our culture right now you know that what what we would often interpret as a collapsing culture jesus would interpret as a ripening harvest and so if you're a christ follower the way that you view that like your perspective on what's happening around us is super important Uh, because if we don't view what's happening around us as something god is in then we view that as people who are against us instead of people that god is for and we will kind of interact with the lost or what jesus calls the harvest in the wrong way so we talked about that for a few weeks and then last weekend uh, it was really heavy on my heart that like we all have a bunch of broken relationships, right? That whatever the circumstances have been for these last couple of years, it has caused uh, fissures all through our culture and our families, even parts of the church. And we have tension in these relationships. And uh, as followers of Christ, just like Jesus would pursue us to heal his re- our relationship with him, we then pursue each other, and we love each other that way. And it's super important that uh, that we take that initiative, own that reconciliation, and go into each other's lives. And so we talked about that last weekend. Uh, this weekend, I want to I want to talk kind of about the last thing that was kind of on my heart. And the next weekend, we're going to kick back over to the gospels and uh, kind of uh, continue talking about Jesus's specific teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but I wanted to share this this weekend because it, it's uh, it's on my heart and i feel like i have to i feel like god put it there and i feel like it's a conversation that i that i wanted to put out into our church family and something i want us to uh to pay attention to so uh, when i was away i was um <clears throat> i was doing a bunch of research and and uh, doing a bunch of reading a bunch of thinking and i was thinking about the dna of grace church right so uh, 20 almost 23 years ago now heidi and i came up and we started uh, the Bath Campus, and from there, uh, what we would think of as Grace Church kind of birthed from there, right? So now there's eight campuses, and and we're trying to plant churches and all the things that is the movement of Grace. When we came up uh, to do that, um, we made some fundamental decisions, and one of the fundamental decisions uh, was tied to how young people raised in the church wind up leaving the church. So. I was a youth pastor back in the day, I watched this happen, that we'd have all these kids in our youth group, they would be super tied into the church, and then uh, the stats are about 80, 85 percent of them when they graduate from high school will leave the church, and then they're gone, usually for about a decade, uh, they're gone completely, and then usually about when they have kids, they start coming back into the church. So. It goes from 80, 85% to some other statistic when there's a return, but there's about a 10 year window there. And I, I, I don't know if somebody, if I got this from somebody, but somewhere I started calling that the lost decade from 18 to 28 is a lost decade when people kind of walk away from Jesus, walk away from the relationships with the church and, um, and are gone from it. To that end, when we started recognizing that, one of the things that we decided to do as a church was we decided to try to reach directly into that decade. So if you've gone through discovery, you've heard me talk about how we will, we will focus on a 24-year-old. And the reason we focus on a 24-year-old is because a 24-year-old in North America is the least likely person in North America to be a part of the church. And so at Grace Church, one of our values is we do hard things. Nobody else is focusing on a 24-year-old, so we're like, we'll do it. And we started focusing on a 24-year-old. We started doing that 23 years ago. Now that has actually worked, and and God has blessed that in tremendous ways, and the church has grown. And it, and it what it does is it makes us be disciplined in how we're trying to communicate what we're trying to say. And when I made that decision, I was 28. I'm not anymore. I know, it's shocking with the gray hair and everything. You think I'm younger, don't you? But but uh, what it has done is as I get older, it has made us be disciplined to be students and to be humble and to learn from that, that younger generation as we go forward. So I just wanted you to have that background. It's a little bit of my DNA and, and our DNA. And as I was away, just kind of reading, um, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about, man, the whole world has changed. There's all these fissures, like there's... there's uh, uh, there's generational divides, there's political divides, there's racial divides, there's gender divides, like all this division, and so I was just thinking about that, and I was like, if we're going to keep reaching the next generation, what what what's that look like, and how does that play out? In the middle of all that, my friend sent me some articles that I was reading, and uh, the articles were written in a really unique way. Instead of looking at the 80, 85% of young people who disconnect from the church and asking why they disconnect from the church, what the article did was they inverted that study and they said let's look at the 15 or 20% of the young people who stay in the church and let's ask why do they stay? Like what drew them in? And the research on that was really, really fascinating. Uh, so uh, a few of the things. Um, one of them was that they have an intimate relationship with Jesus. So somewhere along the way, in their growing up years, they made a genuine commitment to follow Christ, right? And they said, "I I'm deciding that I'm going to give my life to the definition and the direction of." of Jesus Christ, and some people would say, can a child or a teenager do that? And I'm like, yeah, a teenager can decide to be a doctor, they can decide to be a lawyer, they can decide to go into the military, they can, they can make life directive decisions when they're young that affect them and, and drive them for the rest of their life. It happens all the time. So you can definitely do that in faith. And one of the things they found was the, the people who stayed, they, they made that decision. The other, another one that they found was that those, the people who stayed, had a, a cultural savvy. So instead, instead of just looking and saying, I'm going to get caught up in pop culture, I'm going to do what everybody else is doing in high school, they had a different view of it. And they could kind of see between it and around it, and it influenced them, but they kind of knew that life didn't begin and end like in the, you know, the 11th grade kind of a thing. And so they were bringing the, those perspectives to their decision-making as they were going through life. The third thing that they said was what I want to share with you and talk with you about. Because when I read this, it caught my attention in a way that hadn't caught my attention before. And when I read it, it, it just screamed out at me for, for a couple of reasons. The third thing that they said was this. They said people who grow up in the church, who stay connected to the church and to their relationship with God one of the most definitive things that marked their interaction during their time at church was intergenerational relationships and they said if they had intergenerational relationships it became this major factor in their relationship with god and when i read that that jumped out to me big time for two reasons one because I realized, as I, as I was thinking through I'm like, yeah, that's, that's right. Because that's what happened to me. Like when I grew up in church, I had intergenerational relationships. When I, when I was a, a little kid, I had a Sunday school teacher. Her name was Mrs. Riggs. She was the worst Sunday school teacher in the history of Sunday school. She's terrible. But she loved us. She made us cookies or brought us donuts every week. And she never missed a week and it made a statement, like I felt loved by somebody beyond my peers. Like I always had friends, but like I knew Mrs. Riggs loved me. Uh, When I got into junior high, I had the second worst Sunday school teacher in the history of Sunday school teachers. Uh, His name was Milt Petrie, his wife's name was Nancy. He he was a horrible Sunday school teacher. He would come to Sunday school, and he had like a curriculum book, and he would literally read it to us. It was awful. Like, it was just painful. Like, I would, I'd rather you know, maybe be in prison than, than because that's what Sunday school felt like. So, it, science school was horrible, but Mill and Nancy would invite us to their house all the time. And they had, like, their kids were grown, and they had, like, a pool table, and they had, like, a ping-pong table, and they would get food for us. And that's pretty much the recipe to hang out with teenagers. And so, we, we were at their house constantly we never felt like we were imposing, we, we never felt like we were unwelcome, but we were there, I, looking back now, I'm like, that must have been a horror, like, you're flooded with, t- no wonder Milt was a bad high school teacher, he was exhausted, right, because we would keep him up all night, he was a factory worker, and so he, he would give his weekends kind of to us, right? I, then as I thought about, as I got older, I realized that not only did Older people invest in me, but when my faith really came alive is when I took that investment and started investing in people younger than me. And like when I start when I was in high school and I started investing in the junior high kid or the elementary kid, and that dynamic I'm like that's that is so true when you start thinking about that that dynamic that there's people ahead of me, there's people behind me, and my faith comes alive when the people ahead of me are like opened and pouring into my life, and I'm allowing that to happen. And then when I'm like doing that to the people behind me. So not only do I know like the six-year-old who I had in in, uh, game day, but I know the 60-year-old who was there volunteering too. And the church wasn't just my peers and just the people my age and stage of life. The church was kind of everybody around me. It was intergenerational. And it doesn't really matter if you're 16 or 66. Like when that mix starts to happen, it has a, a dynamic effect in, in, the, in, in your life, right? So the first reason that jumped out to me was because of that. The second gen- reason that that jumped out to me, this intergenerational relationship thing jumped out to me, is I got to thinking about it and I thought, when you think about it, that's what everybody needs. Like, everybody needs people that they respect who are older than them telling them that it's okay, telling them that they're doing a good job, Uh, being proud of them. You know, I'm 51, and I still need people older than me to be proud of me. I, I need to know that. Right? And and I need to know, I I i I've been a pastor for almost 30 years. I still need pastors who've done it longer than me to tell me I'm doing the right thing. Cause I feel like I'm making it up as I go. And so when they say, No, you're actually making the right decision, that, that's a dynamic, that's a dynamic thing, right? So we need people older than us to build into us. We crave that. Now here's what's crazy. I also need people younger than me to be proud of me. So I need need people younger than me to look up to me. I need them to, to recognize my wisdom. I need them to recognize that I have something to offer them. So it doesn't really matter where you're at. You need people older than you affirming you and you need people younger than you respecting you. And it's actually like a basic human need that happens. So God in his wisdom in the church, he's like, yeah, what a way to make faith play out. What a way to get your needs met. When it's intergenerational, it makes a difference. When I'm only locked into my peers, whether my peers are 15 or my peers are 55, when I'm only locked into my peers, none of that exchange is happening back and forth. But when you stop and think about it, that's a a core need that we have in our lives is God created us to interact with each other that way, okay? Now, here's the tension. Here's the tension all this. It it works in our faith development, it works in our life, we all need it. Even if we're kinda saying we don't, we do, right? Here's the tension. The tension is that we all want somebody to be proud of us, but we're afraid that they're going to be ashamed of us. So it's easier for me to push you away than it is to take the risk that I'm not going to get from you what I need from you. Uh, We all want people behind us to respect us and look up to us. It's a basic need. Everybody needs to be looked up to in some way. It fills our soul. We need that, but we're afraid that they're going to make fun of us because they're gonna, they're gonna possess a cultural IQ that you're not gonna possess, right? A, a, a junior high kid is gonna think things are cool in junior high that in high school you didn't know were cool, and they, they're gonna maybe think you're dumb for not knowing it. And that plays out all the way through. So I, I need that, but I'm afraid that I'm gonna get like scorned instead of embraced if I open myself up to it. We all long to be invested in, but we feel afraid of being abandoned. Like that coach said that he believed in me, then he cut me, hasn't talked to me since. And my boss said that I was, I was the next one that was going to get the promotion, and then he downsized and he asked me. Like, we're afraid of that tension. We all long to give to somebody. Like, I'd love to give you my knowledge. I'd love to give you a shortcut in life, but I'm afraid of you rejecting me. So these are core needs that we have. They're core to, like, life. They're core to faith. But they're also, like, core fears that we have. This intergenerational thing is what we want and what we need and kind of what we're afraid of all at the same time, right? So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about how do we we beat this? How do we beat this so what we need and what we want and an obvious component of what God uses in our life we can bring to each other? And what I'm going to share with you is not going to blow your mind. I told you it's like a different kind of conversation. I'll blow your mind next weekend. But it's not, it's not going to blow your mind. But it's going to remind you, and what I hope it does more than anything is I hope it starts pointing you to the people in front of you and the people behind you And and it it starts causing us to interact with each other in a different way, okay? So what's it gonna take for something like this to to look? I just looked through the scriptures and I found these principles that I think are important. Ready, here's the first thing. If we're gonna interact intergenerationally, the first thing that's gonna happen is we're gonna have to be teachable. We're gonna have to be teachable, or another way to say that is humble, right? There's this fascinating interaction in the scripture where there's this guy, Philip, he's one of Jesus' disciples, and uh, Philip, God sends Philip to this guy, and the only, the Bible just calls him the Ethiopian eunuch. He was like this governmental official. And so it's kind of this cool story, kind of supernatural story, where Philip goes and he interacts with this guy, the Ethiopian, right? And this is what the Bible says happens Uh, Philip ran to him, the Ethiopian, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, How can I unless someone guides me? And I want you to see the Ethiopian was a man of power. He might have even been older than Philip. The Bible doesn't really say. But he had a teachable spirit. He's looking for something. He has a need. He's wanting something. He has a longing or a craving. It's built into him. He's looking for it in the Scriptures. And Philip says, do you understand what what you're doing? He says, no, actually I don't. And how can I understand that? unless someone guides me right when you look at the scriptures all through the scriptures you're going to see this principle of teachability or humility again and again and again and Jesus is going to instruct his followers and you're even going to see it in his life that he's going to tell us to learn and he's even going to learn from those who are kind of older or stronger than he is so Jesus is going to look at his followers he's going to say guys if you really want to understand faith and you really want to understand what it's like to follow me, you should look at children. You should have the faith of a child. They have something to teach you. That's very disillusioning to me because I'm like, you should look at me. I know big words. Jesus is like, nah, I don't look at Jeff. You should, like, go hang out in Power Kids because they have a faith that is actually the example of faith that you should exercise. You should be teachable from those behind you, right? Jesus was humble to his father. His father was, and Jesus would learn, so to say, or accept from his father. And you'll see this teachability all the way through the scripture that those who follow Jesus learned those who came to faith in christ they had to lay down their their pride or their sense of arrival there's a great story where jesus is talking to a guy with a phd his name's nicodemus and he's talking to nicodemus Nicodemus is is like the highest ranking teacher in all of Israel. And Jesus is looking at him, he's like, bro, you don't understand what you're talking about. And Nicodemus let Jesus, the carpenter, the guy with no degrees, instruct him on who the Messiah really was. And his faith. When you look at the book of Romans, what you'll see is faith, 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 humility, teachability, all the way through it. It's a principle in scripture. So if we're gonna interact with each other in this intergenerational way, we're going to have to learn to be teachable or humble with each other, right? And that applies whether you're 15 or you're 51. I'm 51, so I'm in this really weird phase of my life where I'm not really old. I'm only 10 years older than Tom Brady, I'm just saying. Like I'm, not, I'm not really old, but I'm not young either. I'm just at the stage of life where you wake up and things hurt. That's the stage of life that I'm in, right? Always have some leave in your pocket. That's kind of my life right now, okay? So I'm 51, so this is what that means. At 51, I am an expert in some things. I really am an expert in it. I'm, I might be in a room where I am the guy that has the best answer because I've been doing certain things for a long, long time. There's other things in life that I'm a complete novice in. And I got people ahead of me, and I got people behind me. And i have to be teachable right there's times that i walk into a room and the best thing i can do is give my wisdom if you're behind me i probably have a shortcut or two for you depending on what we're talking about that can save you a bunch of hassle save you a bunch of work and give you some wisdom in your life because i'm an expert in certain things but i'm a novice in other things Most of the things that I'm a novice in involve my cultural IQ. I don't really understand social media. I don't really understand how a younger generation thinks. The world changed and I watched it and they lived it. So if I want to affect the world, I'm going to have to receive from the people behind me. They're going to have to explain it to me. And I'm going to have to be humble enough to take that in. There's some things in my life that I am, the, I am, I am exceptionally good at because I've done it for so long. Right? So I'm a good public speaker. I don't ever think about speaking in public. I just do it. Never crosses my mind, because I'm so good at it. There's other things in life I have no skills in. I'm putting a furnace in. I better not touch that thing, or I'll blow my family up. I have no skills whatsoever in that, right? Well, being teachable is just recognizing that. Sometimes I can really help you, and sometimes I really need your help. Sometimes I can manage on my own, Some things I should stay far away from and just receive the knowledge or the wisdom that somebody else is trying to give me, right? And that's a spiritual process. It's practical in life, but it's a spiritual process. And if we're going to get the wonder of intergenerational relationships, teachability has to be in the thick of it, right? And here's the other one I wrote down. The other thing is, you're thinking about Philip and this eunuch, was fascinating. The eunuch looks at Philip and he says, I can't understand it unless you guide me. Like, I need a guide. And then the Ethiopian did something fascinating. Ready? He looked at Philip and he invited Philip to come and sit with him. He invited Philip to come and sit with him. There was an invitation from the person who needed the guidance, right? Right? And I just said this, if we're going to learn from each other, we're going to have to embrace the risk of trusting each other. Trust is shattered. And it's shattered for a bunch of reasons. Sometimes trust is shattered and it's not fair. Sometimes trust is shattered and it is fair. You're supposed to be able to trust your leaders. You're supposed to be able to trust your pastors. You're supposed to be able to trust your parents. And sometimes those are the people who've hurt you the most. So you're not being hard-headed or hard-hearted. You're just like, I learned that lesson and I'm not doing that again, right? You're supposed to be able to trust those behind you. You're supposed to cheer for them. But a lot of times, the people behind you come at you with an agenda and demand that you accept it. right? And, And they don't care what you have to say. They don't care if their agenda is wise or unwise. You just better accept it and if you don't, then you're gonna get labeled and discounted. It's not fair. Somewhere in there we have to trust because when I've been hurt or I've had an agenda forced on me, my tendency is going to be to withdraw. But I need these relationships. I crave somebody older affirming me and I crave somebody younger respecting me. It doesn't matter if you're 15 or 55, everybody craves that. So I'm going to have to take the chance of trusting somebody. I'm gonna to have to look at somebody, and I'm gonna to have to humble myself, be teachable, and I'm gonna to have to say, actually, I don't know what I'm looking at. Will you come help me? Right? Because a junior hire could probably be really helped by a kid that's in high school to navigate junior high. A high school kid can probably get a lot of help from a kid that's a young adult navigating high school. An 80-year-old probably can get a lot of help navigating their relationship with their grandkids by interacting with somebody who's their grandkids' age. A 20-year-old can probably get a lot of wisdom from a 40-year-old. A person breaking into the marketplace can probably get a lot of wisdom from a person that's been in it. A newlywed couple can probably get a lot of wisdom from somebody who's been married a long time. But we have to choose to trust and when trust is the very thing that's broken that's going to be one of the hardest decisions that we have to make we have to invite each other into one another's lives here's the last thing i wrote down for all of this to play out we have to be in the room we have to be in the room i think hebrews 10:25 is a very important verse for today it's a very important verse for today The writer says, let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The writer looks and says, guys, some of us have deprioritized being in the room, and let's not deprioritize that. It's a big deal that you're in the room, because in the room is where relationships are built, right? As somebody once said that absence makes the heart grow fonder. I think that's a really stupid statement. Absence makes the heart forgetful. Absence makes the heart callous. Absence makes the heart passive. And when you stop seeing and stop interacting with each other, you will stop being involved in each other's lives it's just the way that it is online online is a great supplement it's a horrible substitute online is a great supplement it's a horrible substitute it's great when the kids have a tournament that weekend or you're at home with a sick baby or whatever it's a great supplement that's why we do things online It's a horrible substitute because you actually cannot build the deep relationships online. Not the kind of relationships that Jesus wants us to give to each other. You have to be in the room to do that. Now this is what happens. You got people behind you and you got people in front of you. And you have to choose to be in that room with each other. And both of those, those people are struggling. If you're younger, you're struggling because you've gone through a, a season that was formative in your life where you were taught to isolate yourself from each other. So long before that season ever happened, you were fighting the phone, right? Phone down, friends up kind of a thing. So you're fighting the phone. Then you go in, into the COVID season and you're taught to live on the phone. And you isolate from each other and instead of uh, being with groups of people and having many relationships that you care about, what happens generally is you find the three or four friends that you feel safe with and you hunker down and that's your world. And having three or four friends that you feel safe with is a absolutely wonderful thing and it's an important thing and it's a gift from God. The problem is this, is that your f- three or four friends who are all the same age as you, right? They lack wisdom, they lack wisdom. That's, what, that's, that's the problem with like TikTok. Like TikTok is great and it can be fun and I'm not against TikTok, but when you, when you search all of your answers on TikTok, TikTok is from your peers, it lacks wisdom. There's no miles on it. It's friends telling friends what they think. And when you isolate like that, you cut all wisdom out of your life. When you're older and you isolate because you've been taught to isolate and you're fearful and you get used to it, when you're older and you isolate, you cut all vision and energy out of your life. You're not exposed to anything new. You don't even know what TikTok means. Right? You're like, somebody get a clock. Like, I I got you, right? You only know what it means. Because you're only talking to each other. And when you isolate with each other, you lack zeal. You actually lack wisdom also, because youth have wisdom. So we've been taught to isolate. Now, this is what happens. Those of us who have been who are younger tend to isolate. Those of us who are older. We haven't fought isolation. What we've done is we fought obligation. The nest is empty. The kids are gone. COVID hit. I don't have the kids to draw me back in. And the lake is kind of nice. I mean, it's nice not having to teach Sunday school to somebody else's kids. It's kind of, I mean, we had a life group and it's kind of nice having our Tuesday nights back. And all of our healthy obligations were broken and they haven't been reestablished. Right? I, I just, I'm being honest with you. This is my generation. Being honest with you. If it wasn't for high school students and college students, I don't know how we would make the ministries of the church work right now. And part of that is really phenomenal. I love you, and part of that's just not acceptable. And isolation and freedom from obligation both have a selfishness that underpins it. And the wisdom that the people behind you need is not available to them, right? It's not available to them. Because you passing your wisdom down does not look like an online class or a men's Bible study. It looks more like you opening your home and hanging out with people. We have to be in the room. We have to. We have to be in the room to share our lives with each other. And some of the angst, if you're ahead, if you're older like I am, some of the angst you feel about the younger generation is because you don't know them. And if you're younger, some of the, some of the resentment you have toward the older generation is because you don't know them. And this is what happens. When you don't know somebody, absence does not make the heart grow fonder. It makes it grow colder and callous. When you don't know somebody, you can categorize them bunch of boomers. I'm like, first of all, I'm not, not even close to a boomer, but whatever. Like, bunch of boomers, bunch of snowflakes. And, and they're like, we're not a snowflake. What are you talking about? We're not snowflakes. You'll categorize people. And this is what happens. Ready? You with me? When you categorize someone, you dehumanize them. And when you dehumanize them, you lose your sense of responsibility to love them. It's those people it's that type of person. It's no longer an individual. Because absence makes the heart grow callous and cold. It doesn't make it grow warm and loving. When you're in the room with somebody, they're rehumanized. And now I'm interacting with a person, not a category. I'm interacting with a person, not a generation. And when you start to do that, what you've been craving, I wish those people would listen to me. I wish they would learn from me. What you've been craving starts to happen. It starts to happen. It's fascinating that when that starts to happen, it actually affects us spiritually, not just sociologically. It affects us spiritually. And you start to have the needs in your life that God wants to meet in your life be met in a powerful and a different way because of the people that God brought into your life, right? And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. The, the reason I'm passionate about this is, is for a bunch of reasons, but here's the main one. When Jesus came and lived for us, and then when Jesus offered his life for us on the cross, And when he suffered and he died and he rose again, right? Jesus provided for the forgiveness for our sins. Jesus brought victory over death and victory over sin. Ready? You with me? The other thing that Jesus did, are you with me? He created the church. The church is not a man made creation. The Church was bought, paid for, and initiated by Christ. We know the day we call it the day of Pentecost. So when Jesus created the church, the Apostle Paul later on, he says, the church is made up of a bunch of parts, and each one is a needed and necessary part of it. When Jesus created the church, if you 're a follower of jesus christ you 're part of the church, the reason that 's a big deal. It's because when jesus created the church he gave us to each other all these needs can be met by each other the things i long the respect that i need from somebody behind me the, the wisdom that i need from somebody above me Somebody, I don't have a mom, I don't have a dad. Who could be proud of me? Who can spur me on to love and good deeds? Who can tell me? I, I didn't have a mom or a dad. Who can tell me I'm being a good parent? Who I didn't have a dad. Who? What dad will ever, how can I even know if I'm being a good one or not? All of that God gives to us and each other. And we give, the Bible says those things then we give to each other. We we give ourselves to the world, but we give ourselves to each other. And when that gets hindered, or that gets lost sight of, the church isn't as strong as it should be. Ready? But you're not. You're not as strong. When, when, When the main factor... One The top five main factors is intergenerational relationship. That means I need that for my spiritual journey. See? And I need that just like you need it. My mentor, Pastor Bob, is 83. I still need him to be proud of me. I need that. I'm 51. I've been doing this for 30 years. I still need him to tell me that I'm doing a good job. Another one of my mentors is a guy named Newt Larson. When Newt watches something online and he's like, you did a good job, I'm like, oh, I did a good job. I still need that. When one of the college students looks at me and says, Pastor Jeff, that sermon made sense to me, I need that. I need to know that I'm not an old fossil, an attractive one, but an old one that's irrelevant. Like, I need that. When they look at me and say, uh, Pastor Jeff, maybe next time you say it, you should say it this way. I need that. I didn't know. I didn't know something just blew up online and everything changed. You're not allowed to say that word anymore. I didn't know that. We need this. You listen? We need this. Listen. And Christ gave his life to give it to us. He gave his life to give it to us, and so that's why it's important. That's why it's a valuable thing. It's missing in our world, and it's it's sitting in this room. See? And I think it pleases Jesus, and I think it helps us when we're able to love each other in this way. Right? Okay. Would you pray with me? The band's going to come out. I just ask you a couple questions. Guys, are you teachable? Are you teachable? I didn't say gullible. I just said teachable. Are you learning new things? Are you asking questions from people who might know? Are you teachable? Are you in the room? Are you in the room? God gave you your friends and he gave you the rest of the family too. Are you in the room? And by the way, sometimes people can't be in the room because of their health and their, so we go to their room. (laughs) We just love on each other. Would you give your life away? Would you invest in those in front of you and those behind you, right? Jesus, will you help us with this? Will you meet us in our fears? God, we've all been burned. We've all been frustrated. We've all been betrayed. What we do best is sin against each other. But Jesus, there's a bunch of your followers who actually want to do it right. We're not gonna do it perfectly, but we want to love each other. We wanna help each other. We wanna enjoy deep and meaningful relationships. So would you somehow help us to push through the trust, to take the risk, and to be open to knowing and loving each other. And God, would you meet those needs Most of us are missing parents. Most of us are longing for somebody to be proud of us. Most of us want to be respected and be able to share what we've learned. So God, would you draw us to each other and help us to give our lives away? Would you meet us in these ways even now, Jesus?